0: Now, please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Haggai. It's just three books prior to the book of Matthew. Haggai, we are now in the post-exilic prophets, men whom God raised up to minister the word to his people who had returned from exile in Babylon and in other nations, And Haggai is just a short two-chapter book divided very clearly into four oracles. And tonight we come to the last of the four and the shortest of the four. Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one, by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And that's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him to bless it to us now. Father in heaven, please bless the ministry of the word. We read in your word and we believe that the gospel is your power for salvation to everyone who believes. That it is in your word that you sanctify us. So use your word for those purposes tonight in us. We pray for the mighty ministry of your Holy Spirit in our midst. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Saul, David, and Solomon were the only kings who reigned over all 12 tribes of Israel. The kingdom was greatly expanded under the reign of David and then even further expanded under Solomon. But when Solomon died and his son took the throne, shortly the, very shortly thereafter, the kingdom was divided. And the 10 northern tribes, we could say they seceded Uh, They cast off the Davidic kingship, and they appointed their own king. And from that time forward, there wasn't a king who reigned over all 12 of the tribes. And it's interesting that when they came to meet with Solomon's son, they'd made a proposition to him and were hoping that he would accommodate them, and he didn't. Rehoboam, son of Solomon, uh, heeded the unwise counsel of his peers, rather than the wise counsel of those men who had stood before his father. And when the people of uh, the northern tribes heard the response of Rehoboam, they rejected him. They said, sayonara. Uh, Actually, what they said was, um, what portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. And why were they saying David? Why were they saying we have no portion in David? David had been, by this time, he'd been dead for over 40 years. They were saying David because David represents that dynasty in Israel among the Hebrew people. His name represented his line. And it represented a covenant that God had made. And David's lineage is highly important in redemptive history. Because God had promised, remember David wanted to build a house for God, and God said, you're not going to build me a house. Your son who will come after you will build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And God promised David that his son would sit on the throne, and that the throne of his son would endure forever the throne of David. But Solomon reigned only 40 years, just like his father. 40 years is a good long reign, not quite as long as Elizabeth's, but it's a long reign. So what do we make of this? The promise and the covenant pertained not to Solomon, not to Rehoboam, but to the son of David, Jesus Christ. That's ultimately the fulfillment and the meaning of that covenant that God made with David. It pertained to one who would come in future days, who would be the savior of the world. And yet, people refer to David and his line and any king in the Davidic line as David sometimes. And even during Jesus' own earthly ministry, people called him son of David because they understood that messianic connection. Some of them did. And they knew he was a descendant of David. And they called him son of David. Remember, Bartimaeus did. Have mercy on me, son of David. And so you see how the name is used. Well, in Haggai chapter 2, in this last oracle, the name Zerubbabel is being used in a very similar way. The name of a person who actually lived, the name of a person who even had a certain uh, degree of authority, but the name of a person who represented something beyond himself and something greater than himself. Now again, Haggai wrote four oracles and the third and the fourth, the fourth being the one we're considering tonight, they came on the same day. Do you see how the text said the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. He had just received the oracle that we read last time we were together in Haggai and then a second oracle came the same very day and then after this, Haggai's... uh, his brief ministry comes to a close. It was less than two years in duration, at least his writing ministry as a prophet. No doubt he carried on and continued alongside Zechariah uh, to encourage the people and to speak the word of God to the people. But his prophetic ministry, as it's recorded for us in Holy Scripture, was very brief. And this last oracle is directed specifically and especially to Zerubbabel, the governor. He closes with an important message, especially for the governor of Israel, but it's also an important message for you. It's an important message for us. And the vital lesson of this oracle and of this message is that the Lord's anointed will shatter the nations and reign forever. The Lord's anointed will shatter the nations and reign forever. In the second oracle, we read about shaking of the nations. Well, we read about it again in this last oracle, and that's our first point, the shaking of the nations. And then the text goes on to speak of God and how he establishes his chosen. And that's going to lead right into how the text foreshadows Christ. So let's consider, first of all, the shaking of the nations. In Haggai's prophecy, this is the second reference to shaking, shaking. We saw it in the second oracle earlier in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. And what we have here in the final oracle of Haggai is a somewhat abbreviated version of the same thing. But the same glorious work of God is in view here, as was in view in verses 6 and 7. And, as I'm sure you know already, uh, these verses are quoted in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 26 where the writer says at that time at Sinai in other words at that time his voice God's voice shook the earth but now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens there's this shaking that's going to come and what does it mean? What does it mean when God says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth? Well, certainly it's an expression of his power. It's a statement of God's might. And it lays stress, especially as it's, uh, as it's described for us here, it lays stress on his lordship and his, his uh, supremacy over the nations. It reminds me of Psalm 2, where God says, why are the nations raging? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? And it talks about how the kings of the earth have set themselves against the Lord and is anointed, and the Lord laughs. He says, I've set my son, set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. <clears throat> so this shaking, its basic meaning is pretty obvious. You don't have to be an Old Testament scholar to understand what verses this second part of 21 and first part of 22 mean, look at them again. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. It means that the Lord God Almighty is going to demonstrate his power among the nations. He's going to demonstrate his power against the nations as an opponent to them. And he says, I'm going to shake and and the writer of the Hebrews really brings this aspect of it out. He says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. He's not just going to shake the earth, he's going to shake the heavens as well. Which speaks of his shaking of the cosmic powers. His shaking and his overthrowing spiritual forces in heavenly places. And in connection with that i think it's significant if you look in verse uh, 22 again he says he's going to overthrow the throne singular of kingdoms it's singular there in your esv bible most of the other english versions i consulted it's also single and it's single in the hebrew speaking of one throne of the kingdoms plural which may very well be a reference to satan's throne his kingdom. God says, I'm going to shake it. He says, by his almighty power. What's he going to do? What are the words that are used here? Shake. He's going to overthrow. He's going to destroy. There's not really a lot of ambiguity here, is there? This isn't hard to interpret. When he speaks of kingdoms, he's going to shake those, he's going to overthrow and destroy those. That refers to authority structures of all kinds. It refers to human governments. God says, I'm about to shake them. But He also speaks of chariots and riders. That's a specific reference to military powers. You know, when a government collapses, what happens? A lot of times the people who are in charge of the military come in and they take control. Well, that's not going to matter when God shakes the nations because he's going to shake all the military might of mankind as well. And how is he going to do that? He's going to use them to destroy each other. The horses and the riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother, it says. God's able to do that. He does it frequently. We read about it, for instance, in the book of Judges, chapter 7, when Barak and Deborah lead the people against the invading uh, nations and, and it says that they, they turned against one another, or excuse me, no that's Gideon, sorry the Midianites that God sent Gideon against, they were so confused when, when Gideon as 300 assaulted the, the camp of the Midianites, they were in such confusion that they, they turned on one another God caused that and something very similar happened when Saul was leading the Israelites against the Philistines in First Samuel 14. The Israelites were defeating the Philistines and they panicked and they started killing one another. God can turn his enemies against one another. He's able to overthrow enemies by their own devices. And we can take comfort in that. When we lack power over our enemies, God has power. And he can even turn them against one another. So that's what it means, you get it. But the more complicated question is, uh, well, just like when Jesus told his disciples that not one stone was gonna be left on another, the temple was gonna be torn down, we could ask about this passage, the same thing that Jesus' disciples asked Jesus, uh, when will these things be? And that's what we really wanna know, right? When will these things be? let me point out, point out a couple of things <clears throat> first thing is this prophecy was given during the lifetime of Zerubbabel but it was not fulfilled during the lifetime of Zerubbabel it's pretty obvious simply from from the passage of time and from from historical record historical fact <clears throat> The prophecy was given during Zerubbabel's lifetime but not fulfilled in his time. And the second thing is which kind of springs out of the first Haggai is an eschatological book. That's a big word I know. Most of you know what it means but in case you don't the study of end times the study of the last things we call that eschatology. That's what the the Greek word means the study of the last things. And Haggai is speaking here about the eschaton. He's speaking about the end. And the key elements that you have in this book, and especially in this oracle, are the shaking of the nations and the restoration of the Davidic throne, neither of which are ultimately fulfilled in Zerubbabel's days or Haggai's days. Israel never had a king on a throne ever again. And yes, some nations were shaken, but others rose up, right? Okay, so neither of these things, the shaking of the nations or the restoration of David's throne was fulfilled in Haggai's day, but both are perfectly and ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Haggai's third and fourth oracles describe the fruit of the restoration of the house of God. You remember when the prophecy opened in chapter 1, God rebuked his people because they had left off the work of rebuilding his house, rebuilding the temple. They had started, they had been forced to stop, and then they just sort of gave up. And his first oracle through Haggai was a rebuke to them and a command that they get back to the work of building the house and they did and oracles three and four describe what came as a result or what comes as a result of the people's obedience and their restoration of the house of God. The third oracle which is found in chapter 2 verses 10 through 19, the third oracle speaks of immediate things, things that did take place in Zerubbabel's day. Remember what God said? He said mark this day. It was like he was saying Write this down on your calendar because from this day I will bless you. And he gives them that gracious word, that gracious promise. Okay, so the third, third oracle was about stuff that did take place in the days of Zerubbabel. But the fourth, which is the, the one we're looking at tonight, speaks of things that come later on. This oracle speaks of the last things. Think back to how the writer of Hebrews described it. The way he described it was God is going to shake the heavens and the earth and everything is going to be shaken such that the only thing that's going to be left or the only things that are going to be left are things that can't be shaken. In, uh, in his commentary on Haggai, Andrew Hill wrote, Zerubbabel was indeed instrumental in rebuilding the second temple, but much of what Haggai envisioned was never realized under his leadership. This does not represent a failure of the prophetic word, but rather is another example of the pattern in Old Testament prophetic literature of predictions having both near and distant fulfillments. It happens all the time in prophecy. And that's what's happening here. Now, this shaking of the nations, it's already happening incrementally. It's happening as the gospel goes forth. It's happening as men and women and children turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and are added to his kingdom. As Christ's kingdom grows, there is a sense, an invisible sense, and an incremental sense in which God is already shaking the nations. But the great and the awesome fulfillment that we anticipate comes at the end. So that's the shaking of the nations. And then we've got establishing God's chosen. And that's particularly what we find in verse 23. <coughs> David had many sons. <coughs> and most of his sons had sons. So David had a lot of offspring. Then the question might be, especially at this point, this very sad and rather dark time in the history of the nation of Israel, the Jews, who could claim the throne? Who had a right to the throne of Israel? Who could be king of the Jews? And if you know anything about mankind's hunger for power, or if you know anything about political intrigue, you must know that these things are not new. In fact, political intrigue and hunger for power go all the way back to Genesis 3. And when the serpent came to the woman, tempted her with the forbidden fruit, and then along comes Adam and he eats, bringing our race into ruin, bringing the curse, It was because Adam, whom God had appointed to be his vice-regent, to be his governor on earth, decided, I want more. I want to be like God. And so he ate. Now, when David was king, even while he was still on the throne, even while he was still healthy, His own son rose up against him and tried to take the kingdom away. Absalom, right? Of course, Absalom fell. But then as David was advanced in years and incapacitated, basically, by the infirmity of age, another one of his sons tried to usurp and take the throne, Adonijah. So there's always, even when David himself was alive, there are people trying to take the throne away. So you've got to think that when Israelites, Jews had returned from exile, and there's the land, and there's no king, someone who knew, I'm descended from David. Multiple people probably aspired to take the throne to themselves and become the king, claim rulership. And so God through Haggai, here in verse 23, kind of circumvents all that by declaring who, or more specifically, where the rightful line of the Davidic kingship should be drawn. Through Haggai, the Lord confirms the Davidic covenant through Zerubbabel. This is really important because Jesus was a descendant of Zerubbabel. Look at the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Look at the genealogy in chapter 3 of Luke. uh, Chapter 1 of Matthew and Luke chapter 3. Uh, You trace it and you see the line and Zerubbabel is in there. Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel. Jesus was descended from him according to the flesh. So that's important. It's also important because it shows us God knows there is a descendant, of Israel, a descendant of David in Israel, in the land, and it shows that God himself is preserving and caring for David's line. Even in the midst of all the potential disruption of exile, there may have been doubt in some people's minds. Don't you suppose many of the Jews... We're wondering, well, what happened to the covenant? Is it in effect anymore? They might certainly have wondered that if they knew the words of Jeremiah the prophet because Jeremiah pronounced words of judgment upon King Jehoiachin who was Zerubbabel's grandfather. Jeremiah chapter 22 Turn there with me. Jeremiah chapter 22. Verses 24 and 25. <clears throat> uh, here he's called Koniah, but that's another form of the name Jehoiachin. And God says... As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, (coughs) and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Did you catch that reference to signet ring? Even if you were a signet ring on my hand, I would tear you off, God says, to this wicked king reigning over a wicked and rebellious and obstinate people. So this new reference in Haggai, this new reference to a signet ring signals the reversal of the curse. It's a promise. It's a testimony to God's own people that he hasn't forgotten, David, that the covenant is still in effect. Well, what's a signet ring? What's the significance of that? It's a very costly piece of jewelry. It's always kept close to the ruler or whoever it is. They could wear it on their finger like a ring. They could wear it around their neck on a chain, but they always kept it close to them. And a signet ring bore some kind of an official seal. A seal that was a means of authentication We have boring ways of doing authentication. We enter a four-digit pin or something like that or tell somebody our mother's maiden name. Kings in in the old days, they had a signet. And if something was official and they wanted to confirm that it was official, they would take that signet ring and they would put a stamp on something. And then people knew, this is the word of the king. This came from our sovereign. It's a sign of authority. And before... Haggai's prophecy comes to an end. He speaks to Zerubbabel and he says, I'm going to make you like a signet ring before me. In other words, you, Zerubbabel, will represent me. You will be my stamp of authority. I'm establishing my chosen and it's you, Zerubbabel. There may be other descendants of David in the land somewhere, but you are the one I have chosen. There are two key terms applied to Zerubbabel in verse 23. First of all, he's called my servant. And you can go back and look in your Bibles and see how many times God called David my servant. It also brings to mind the servant songs in Isaiah, which you know point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. But my servant was a title that God frequently used of David. And then the other one is when God says to him, for I have chosen you. That's another thing that was frequently applied to David. God said, I have chosen David to be over my people. And those two terms are combined with reference to David in a couple of really key passages. One of them is uh, Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. The Messianic psalm, and it says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And then in 1 Kings 11, verses 34 God says, this is with reference to Solomon at the time, I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant whom I chose. So you see that idea of choosing and the servanthood. It's all bound up in David and God is here applying it and declaring it in behalf of Zerubbabel. It's like he's renewing the Davidic covenant here. You know, and God does that numerous times in redemptive history at key points. So, for instance, in Genesis, remember God came to Abraham and he, he entered into covenant with Abraham and said, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. and I will bless you and make you a blessing. And then when Isaac became the patriarch after Abraham, Abraham's death, God renewed the covenant and he declared the same things with reference to Isaac so that Isaac and the whole, all the surrounding peoples knew that he was now the beloved and the blessed of the Lord. And he does, God does it again with regard to Jacob. Same kind of thing happens when Moses' ministry and life came to an end and when Joshua was, was raised up to be Moses' successor. God made it clear that The spirit that had been upon Moses was now upon Joshua. And he caused Joshua to be glorified in the sight of the people. And it was Joshua who completed the work that Moses had begun. And I think that's what's happening here at the end of Haggai. This is a key point in redemptive history. And here... The Lord God Almighty is saying, my covenant, he's speaking to Zerubbabel and he's saying, my covenant with David is upon you. The great um, Old Testament commentators, Kyle and Delich wrote this. With these words, the messianic promise made to David was transferred to Zerubbabel and his family among David's descendants and would be fulfilled in his person in just the same way as the promise given to David that God would make him the highest among the kings of the earth. The fulfillment culminates in Jesus Christ, the son of David and descendant of Zerubbabel. And that leads right into our last point, foreshadowing of Christ. He's foreshadowed throughout these verses. Now you might be feeling a little bit cheated, right? Because it says in verse 21, God says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth like it's coming, like next week or something. But uh, like it or not, that term on that day, when it's used by the prophets, it's typical prophetic language to refer to some indefinite time in the future. Sorry, that's just the way it works. Search the scriptures, see that these things are so... (laughs) This is, we could say we're talking in eschatological time here, which is only slightly slower than geologic time. <laughs> um, in context, though, on that day refers to the same time frame in, in which the Lord is going to shake the heavens and the earth. Everything he's promising to Zerubbabel here is on that day. That's the great day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. That's when that final great cataclysmic shaking is going to occur. And that's when the promises to Zerubbabel, which are the promises in the covenant to David, are going to be finally and completely fulfilled. Zerubbabel, then, is a representative figure and for that matter, so was David. It's not to say that they weren't historical figures. They were real life people, of course. Zerubbabel was a living, breathing human being. He was a actual person. He was a human ancestor of Jesus of Nazareth. So he's a historic person, but he's a representative person. He's an heir of David's line. He's an heir of the throne of Israel. And David's line and the throne of Israel all point to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what verse 23 is all about. Verse 23 foreshadows Jesus, but so do verses 21 and 22. They foreshadow Jesus. Why? Because the scriptures teach that the Lord's anointed is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. We read about that in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9. Look at them with me. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then, if we fast forward to the book of Revelation, turn there with me and look at chapter 12. <clears throat> you see that great vision of the woman and the dragon, and the woman is giving birth, and it says in verse 5 she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And then chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Jesus is foreshadowed in those passages and he's foreshadowed for us here in Haggai. By the way, uh, in back in our Haggai text in chapter 22 uh, verse 22 where in the ESV Bible it uses the word destroy the NIV translates it shatter as in shattering the nations with a rod of iron so the eschatological or the end times fulfillment of verses 21 and 22 take place incrementally even now through the advance of the gospel but they culminate with Christ's return when he comes back. Jesus is the one, in other words, who's going to shake the nations. And he's doing it even now. And when he returns, every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will confess that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord. And what this reminds us and makes so clear is that this book, your Bible, Is all about Jesus, the whole thing. It's about Him. Jesus is the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is the Lamb of God provided as a substitute for us to die for our sins. Jesus is the King of Kings who will reign forever and ever. He's the suffering servant. He's the shepherd of the sheep. He's the head of the church. The whole book is about Jesus. The restoration and renewal of God's kingdom will be fulfilled in Christ. The never-ending reign of David will be fulfilled in Christ. The Lord's anointed will shatter the nations and he'll rule forever. That's what Gabriel said to Mary when he came to announce the birth of Jesus. Gabriel said to Mary, the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So why in Haggai chapter 2 verse 23 is this prophecy declared to Zerubbabel? Why didn't he say David? Why didn't he use some other prophetic term to indicate the anointed one who is coming in the future? The reason he spoke specifically and by name to Zerubbabel is for Zerubbabel and also for you and me to know that God is working out his purposes now. He always has been. He's continually working out his purposes. Even in our generation. It might not appear to be so. But he is building his kingdom. As we come to the Lord's table, we can reflect on that. Because as Christ builds his kingdom, as he's building it even now, as he's building his kingdom even in our midst... it doesn't usually look very powerful to the eyes of the flesh, does it? Quite the opposite normally. It usually looks pretty weak, in fact. But it never looked weaker on that Friday afternoon outside of the walls of Jerusalem when the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He had every right to shake the nations right then and there but instead he went to the cross for you and for me. That's the son of David. That's what we come to remember at the table. So as we approach the table, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son in whom all of your promises are yea and amen. Amen. As we come now to the sacrament and to remember his death and to commune with one another and with him, we ask you please to bless unto us this means of grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.